Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk and make a podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. But it's summertime, so it's a lie. We're not walking or running. We're just sitting at my desk in my unair conditioned. Well, my office has an air conditioner, but we can't run it and record this podcast. So um, it's pretty loud. It's gonna be short. <laughs> it's gonna be short. We're podcasting. In a sauna, which Jessica Paget has taught me is the correct way of saying no sauna. No way. No way. Yes. Yes. So say it again. Sauna. <laughs> so that's enough of that. What is astonishing you this week? Um, let's see. Um, okay, so I have to share the story about our eight-year-old Matthew. I love watching him experiencing him grow into his personality and he will like all kids just say things that um you just want to put in a bottle and um and revisit over and over again he just just things come out of his mouth and the other day we were playing uh nintendo wii i believe we were playing the baseball game and um Okay, I'm that parent that doesn't let their kid win. Like, Respect, yeah, yes, for sure. I'm, I'm that parent, so I will pull back and let him get ahead of me, <laughs> and right, and then at the last minute, right, just kind of come back and beat him. Okay, so there's one thing to not let your kid win, and it's another thing to like. I'm not trying punk to punk them. <laughs> I'm not trying to crush him. You're trying to like I just want him to get say, his okay, spirits up and then crush him. I don't want to just like you know dominate him the whole game just you know let him feel himself for a minute so we're playing baseball and i win at the last minute and what comes out of his mouth was um let's see what did he say oh he said you got to be serious <laughs> you got to be serious i said matthew that's that's not the saying it's like you can't be serious that's that that's what you're supposed to say he says, no, it's you got to be serious. That's right. And so we go back and forth, and he is looking at me like, my father doesn't know anything. And, mm -hmm. and he really thinks he's right. And so, again, we go back and forth, and finally I just leave it alone because I think he'll, he'll learn eventually. And so we go back to playing the game, and I just had this moment where I sensed the Holy Spirit saying to me, you know you do that with me, right? <laughs> like oh, that's you, interesting. Yeah. You you insist <laughs> that you know what's right, that you got it, um, and eventually you learn that you don't. And it was it was a fun moment. It was a funny moment. It wasn't like you know thunder and you know yeah. how dare you. It was this um, um, refreshing revelation of my life with God and how patient God is with me and this, um, uh, I won't say constant, but this, this life of repentance. I mean, we're always talking about you and I that repentance really is a gift and yeah. that when you see you are wrong, the response is not a, a double down. The response is not um, 
I'm trash and I'm a horrible right. person and um, or the, or the response isn't I've, I've got to hide it and pretend I wasn't wrong right the the, re, the proper response is oh boy I was off on that and you make a turn in life and there is there is joy there is healing there's life in that and and in that moment as I'm playing this video game with my son I just got the and and I'm 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 delighting in him as we're playing this game. It's for me, right. it's not just about the game. It's this time I'm spending with him because we're laughing, we're doing this playful trash talking, and I'm delighting in him, even though he is one hundred percent wrong. And I just got this warm um feeling that it that God was also delighting in me. Yeah, I mean, what I love about that is like just really wrestling with this idea of what does it mean to enter into the kingdom like a child? Mm. And I think that just it's that sense of having an, an understanding of your right scope, your right sphere, your right size. So I think when a child is in a healthy community, then when someone who loves them and cares for them says, oh, you've you know, you've got that wrong. The child isn't offended. The child isn't threatened. The child isn't demeaned or humiliated. Like the child has a right understanding that like, I don't know everything now. I'm not supposed to know everything now. I don't have to be filled with shame or self-loathing. Like I can just delight in this experience of, um, gaining knowledge or gaining ability. And I think that's, I mean, cause it was interesting. I took Carrie, to swim lessons on Saturday and she's doing really well, but she got out of the pool afterwards and was like, mommy and her teacher is delightful. And the whole setup is just great. And, um, she got out and she's like, mommy, the teacher only tells me what I'm doing wrong. And the teacher never tells me what I'm doing right. And it was so interesting because the, the culture of the lesson is very, like it's very calm, it's very affirming, it's very, but you know, the teacher will say something like, well, no, you're slapping the water and you want to pull through the water to propel yourself forward. And she internalizes that as like, I'm doing it wrong. And, and I'm just like, no, she's teaching you, right? It's not about you're doing it wrong. It's now you're moving to this next level and you have the next stage of ability. And, and also you don't need the teacher to say, you know, good job, floating on the water like you can do that now so you don't need this constant I think there's this whole movement that people want to move away from praising children because they don't want children to be doing things chasing praise or to not be able to discern whether something is good and healthy like as long as someone's praising me I'll go ahead and do it right and it just makes me you know think about all of that that if we to enter into the kingdom as a child is to understand that my intrinsic worthiness is not at stake and that the source of knowledge and correction and leadership is good and trustworthy. And so I can flourish um, without shame in growing in that sense of like seeing our kids just be like, really, I love you, but you're eight and I'm 51. That's him, not me. <laughs> like, do you really that think, was so wrong. do you really think that you have it right and I have it wrong? And, and just like, that's sort of amusing that, that sense that the kids feel like they have to go toe to toe 
in terms of something that's just like, of course you don't. Like you're just, you've only been, you have literally only been speaking for five years. Like, of course you don't know the same. I think like that sense of not having your belovedness and your status at stake and knowing that this person who is sharing with you is sharing with you from a place of love and goodness. And so you can receive it. Um, but and I, the same way, I just feel like I wonder how often I'm resistant to what the spirit is revealing to me because I get overwhelmed and think, well, I'll never be able to walk in that. Or I, I'm such an idiot that I didn't know this before. Or and we can see it in retrospect, right? Correct. Yeah. Right. And I think, but that sense of, I mean, that's that great, one of those great paradoxes of faith is that the more mature you become in Christ, the more you become like a little child. And the, the less mature you are, the more you will, you know, feel and attempt and experience life as an expert, like I have arrived. And so it's the upside down kingdom paradox of all of that. Yeah, that's good. Mm -hmm. So what's astonishing you? Well, I had this really powerful experience last week that I, um, I mean, I want to share it, but I also want to not get super emotional about it. But, um, so I, I mean, people probably know that my dad died about a year and a half ago and um I I really love my dad and my dad was a lawyer and I'm a pastor and our lives are very different and I don't think that anyone ever when you, when you have a, a healthy childhood um I don't no matter how much you change and how much you grow I think there's just a part of us that are just, we're just always seeking the approval and affirmation of our parents um, and our fathers. And that's like the foundation of like every third novel and we, <laughs> whatever, which I think like when you, when you grow up um, in a, in a largely healthy um, family system and you, and you have that, I think a lot of that feels um like you don't really understand what the big deal is because you take it for granted. And then, but as you grow older and you, you have to differentiate and, and you have to live your own life and not your, it's just complicated. Um, there's just tenderness that comes in the parent child relationship and a lot of bittersweetness that is just inevitable. And so, um, I think, um, and I am from a family where, we, we say I love you a lot and mean it, but we don't, um, we, we tend to not talk about the things that are hard. Um, and that's just what it is and that's okay. Um, and so, um, I just, I think we're never ready to let go of our parents. And I think once the opportunity to have conversations is gone, you, you can have a lot of regrets about like, why didn't I ask these questions or why didn't I express these needs or why didn't I seek understanding or, you know, why wasn't I, I braver in um, trying to connect with someone who I loved so deeply and who I know loved me so deeply. And um, anyway, and um, uh, so a couple of weeks ago, um, I was given the opportunity to um, record a sermon that was played at General Assembly, which is our national gathering, um, which is a really um, 
I mean, I'm really honored because. And it was a good sermon. Well, thank you. Um, And so last week I got a letter here at the church and it was from the, um, like the legal office of the denomination, like legal services or whatever. And I just thought like, I don't, it was a thin little form letter. And I just thought, I don't know what this is, but thought it was nothing. And I opened it and it is from a man who um, is um, one of the, like the chief legal counsel for the denomination or whatever. And, and he wrote me this letter and said, you know, my first, um, one of my first experiences as a lawyer was being a second chair to your dad when he um, was doing a trial on um, the circuit court in Jefferson County. And, and this man before he worked with the denomination worked from at the same law firm that my dad worked at their partners there. And, and he just wrote me this letter and said, you know, when I was watching this and I was just thinking how your dad was watching you from the church triumphant and wow. turning and like telling people around him, like, that's my daughter. Wow. And I, and I just, wow. I mean, I, I mean that I, I, it is, it is not often <laughs> that I am rendered speechless, but, um, I just really, um, I mean, I just lost it like I really and I really experienced that and believe um that that the Holy Spirit was telling me like that's true like this is not this isn't a metaphor like you've really been just in your grief and you're wrestling with kind of making sense of like what what is the story of this relationship and um and so anyway it was just this huge gift and um and this thing that I, it's just really unspeakably precious to me. And I'm so astonished. I think so often, I mean, part of the life of faith is just having dark nights of the soul and times when God seems distant and, and just really struggling. And I, and that is real. And it's important that we talk about that. And then there are just these other times in our lives when um, we receive just something that is so such a gift like such like it's just too good and it's not something that I felt I I just am really speechless at at how kind um I believe the Lord is behind that and what a which is what a source of strength and healing and encouragement and blessing that is to me and I just have been kind of marveling at it and I also just I think I have this instinct that when something really good happens I just like I want to want to sit together and then just move past it. Like I don't want to. Um, I don't know why I have Which this. Which is real... why we talk about what's astonishing us, right. so that we take on this discipline of soaking in. Right, right, and I and I sense that. I, I mean, I'm also sort of sensing the Holy Spirit saying, like, don't, don't just put this in a drawer and move on. Like mm. you need to soak in this. Like you you spend a lot of time sitting with your grief and um, just sort of the pain of what it means to be human and all the ways that on this side of eternity, we struggle to love one another well. Um, And I had a really good relationship with my dad, but I, um, but I also sense this as like, don't just receive this and say thanks and then move on back. Like it's important that as much as we don't run away from pain and run away from seasons of doubt and despair and dryness. And we can't run away from those. 
But we also can't run away from these moments where we just experience the grace of God so clearly and abundantly. And, and we need to sit with those and ponder, like, you know, Mary, let me ponder this in my heart and, wh- and what does it mean? So that is what is astonishing me wow. this week and probably Well, you, many you weeks said to the come. word, but it's been in my head um, most of the time while you were sharing. And it's the word grace. I mean, what yeah. an incredible grace this is to you. Right. And I, I was sharing with um, the saints at Derrida Church the other day, um, other Sunday that you never know how your words to someone that you are you're you're speaking to them sincerely but but pretty much it's it's casual conversation you never know how god is going to use them right. as a point of grace as a powerful right. word um in someone else's life and i that's what i heard in in that letter that this was yeah. this person might have been uh, who who knows what was in their heart and mind when they wrote the letter clearly it was uh, meant to be a kindness to you but probably i don't i say probably i don't know I, 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 but i wonder if they um understood how it would be received as not just a kindness from them but grace from god i mean i just i really as i was sitting with it i just really you know, and I'm trying to be more intentional and more comfortable with what I think always should be uncomfortable, which is this idea that like the Holy Spirit dwells within us and that we can have this ongoing and intimate access to the very Spirit of God, which is just an outrageous thing to believe, which is why I think a lot of us kind of want to say like, well, this is about Trinitarian doctrine and this, you know, and not really walk in the fullness of just what it means that all of a sudden your whole life is holy ground. And how do you, how do you live with that level of intimacy and transcendence in, in, in your everyday awareness? And, and so I think as I was sitting there looking at that letter, I really believe that the Holy Spirit was saying to me, this is true. Um, and, and that is such an astonishing thing. And, um, but also, but yeah, to your point, that when we're interacting with people, if we have a sense that, oh, I wonder if this person knows this, or I wonder, or just to be really constantly sort of aware of, you know, God, are you calling me to speak this word to this person? Or are you calling me to, um, you know, say yes to this thing or like just to be willing to be used by the Holy Spirit in a place of real humility. So not that we would walk up to someone and say, the Lord says, blah, blah, blah to you, but to have a a willingness to be the kind of fools for Christ and non-experts and children that we would walk up to someone and say, you know, I'm not sure, but I think the Holy Spirit is telling me X, Y, or Z, or, you know, to have those kinds of brave conversations when frankly, there's a good chance that you're wrong and to present it with that sort of real humility. But I think when we are insist on walking in our own competency, then we really limit the ability of the Holy Spirit to be transcendent in our lives and in the lives of other people. So I'm, because to me that I'm all about encouragement and just encouraging people in our own 
in our own autonomy, but to be open to an awareness of where is the Holy Spirit calling me to encourage someone or to speak a word to someone, or let me just offer this and then, you know, cast bread on the waters and let it go. And I don't need to know if it was right or if it was wrong or what it, what kind of impact it had. I can just be faithful and trust God. Um, and so anyway, it was um, a real gift. I'm really grateful. So. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So what are you thinking about this week? I am thinking about um, just recently, recently, the past couple of weeks, the German government followed through on a promise they made over a year ago to return uh, some precious ancient uh, statues to Nigeria. Uh, these statues are called the Benin Bronzes. They are um, these beautiful metal works of art. Many of them are like um, the heads of kings, uh, um, uh, pictures of people, um, and they were looted uh, in the 17th century by the British. I mean, thousands of pieces. The Benin Kingdom uh, in the 15th century, 16th century, was one of the largest and most powerful kingdoms on the continent. And um, when the British took over what is now Nigeria, they looted the palace and uh, they sold these works of art to uh, museums um, across the world, including the United States. And the German government, uh, being petitioned by the great-great-granddaughter of the last king of Benin. Which is amazing. Can we just pause and say there's someone alive? Right? Is that right? Like the great-great-granddaughter? Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's been amazing. petitioning the government. It's like, you need to return these works of art. They do not belong to you. And, of course, the museums resisted because they're the source of a lot of money. And um, also, when, when these things were taken, they, uh, they were the Europeans were astonished because they had no idea that Africans had the level of sophistication mm -hmm. during the Middle Ages, European Middle Ages, to um, uh, create these works of, of, of bronze. Uh, and I mean, they're just beautiful pieces of art. And so again, they've been sold to museums around the world and the German government has said, uh, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna return these. And a couple weeks ago, the first two were returned um, with the promise of you know many more to come. But I was watching the press conference and personally, I was just so, surprised and pleased that uh, the German foreign minister said that this is a moral issue. This is an ethical issue. These things were taken. They were looted during colonialism, and they are not ours, and we need to give them back. Um, it, for me, it was a beautiful act of repentance, and uh, just Within the past couple of days, the American Smithsonian has made a decision to return uh, 29 of their 39 uh, Benin bronzes. And uh, again, it is 
you know, here's one of those things that you and I, again, we talk about all the time. Repentance is not punishment. <laughs> Repentance mm-hmm. is a work of God's grace that brings healing to everyone involved. And I just find this story so fascinating during a time in this country in which, you know, school boards across the country are saying, well, we don't want to talk about racism. We don't want to talk about systemic racism. Let's let's pretend that doesn't, let's just move on because if we talk about it, it'll just be painful and harmful and do more damage. And I want to say no. <laughs> it's actually doing the opposite. If you will lean into the pain, if you will lean into what is very real history, I mean, the, the British and other European colonial powers did horrible things on the continent. And the German foreign minister said, this is, this is, this is healing. This is, <laughs> well, this is long overdue, but this is necessary for the healing of, for our healing and yours. And mm. I think more countries certainly need to follow suit. And I was having a conversation with someone about something similar uh, recently, someone in, the, in our church community, and I said to him, if I steal something from you, should I give it back? He said, mm-hmm. absolutely. He said, I said, well, then what if I, what if I steal something and I have it for 50, 75, 100 years? Mm-hmm. Do I still owe it to you? He says, absolutely. Because mm-hmm. many people are saying, no, the, the, <laughs> these things were looted, yes, but they've been in these museums for mm-hmm. so many years we shouldn't give them back. It's like, no, at the end of the day, they were stolen and they need to be returned to the rightful owners. What I think is so interesting about that is um, when we were saying before, when we were talking about it, like to me, it's such a Davidic kind of thing that I, I, I think I have always wrestled with when you get really, um, familiar with a biblical text and you realize that it doesn't tell the sort of holy fairy tales that you were raised on as a kid and you think what does it mean that that David is um you know that God made covenant with David and that um one of David's descendants would be on the throne and is the you know the forebearer of the Messiah and and uh, David is known as a man after God's own heart and how do I how do I make sense of that given what I know about David and Bathsheba and, you know, the, and what is, you know, rape and, and, um, murder and how, how is David not disqualified after these acts that are so uh, egregious? And I think that we sort of try artificially to resolve that tension by saying like, I don't know. It was okay, but I mean, it just it wasn't. It it and and one of the commandments that is most clear is the commandment against adultery. And there's just no way to spin it as if well, David was God's best friend because God didn't think that was very a very big deal. Um, I, and I think as I move deeper into life, I understand that you know David a we are not disqualified from God's love when we break God's heart. And, um, and also that David is a man after God's own heart because he repented as well as he worshiped, right? That he, to the point you were saying earlier, didn't 
sort of um, didn't deny it, um, didn't didn't seek to swallow it and bury it and and justify it. He didn't say like, okay, well now. I, I see who I am, God, and so I'm going to remove, I'm going to disqualify myself and in my relationship. And I, you know, that, that really David shows us how to live with the non-duality of who we are, just that we are both capable of, of great faithfulness and great faithlessness. And we can't, we, we can't get around that and that there is no person who is good. Like Jesus saying, like, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And I think David really just, the lesson we don't want to learn from David is how to repent and how to, in our true acknowledgement of our egregious sin, to be able to rejoice in God's faithfulness, that I am not faithful, but I rejoice in God's faithfulness um, to me and to creation, and that I'm not co-creating goodness with God. I am receiving it. And I think, so the connection to me is one of the few colonial powers that's ever really had to wrestle with its own um, wrongdoing and evil is, is Germany, right? Because sort of the colonial playbook in Nazi Germany was used against white people and all of a sudden was revealed to powerful people as not okay. And, and we've talked about this before that it's not that what happened in the Holocaust, it was horrific. And people like to say nothing like that has ever happened before. And that's just not true. That is factually not true that Winston Churchill was fighting against the evil he saw in Hitler and celebrating these same moves of extermination in um, in the British Empire, right? So it was not okay in Germany because it was happening to people who were deemed right white. And so this idea that Germany has been expected by the powerful, enlightened West to return what they looted from Jewish German citizens... And then I think Germany can say, well, why is this different? Why are why do we have to return what was the rightful property of Jewish people, but not have to return what was the rightful property of, you know, people who are now known as Nigerians? It doesn't you have to work hard to convince yourself that this is somehow different when on the plain face of it, a little child would say, no, it's not. If if I steal something from you and manage to keep it for a certain amount of time, does that make it mine? No, of course it doesn't. And and so I think that sense of um, knowing that repentance unleashes us on a wild journey of having to be open to living in a radically different way. Because I think one of the reasons that we're afraid of repentance and reparations as I mean, I think Americans in general, but white Americans in particular, we go like, well, where does it end? And how are we going to continue to go on in this way? And like, I know it's scary, but yeah, like that is the point. We will not be able to go on in this way. And we will have to come up with, with new ways of building community and being in relationship with one another. And all of a sudden, people who have had very little power will have more agency and resources and what is that going to mean and I don't know but the fact that we're scared 
doesn't change the moral calculus of um, of what has happened. So I think, um, and I think David sort of having this sense of, you know, Psalm 51, like I, I am, you know, I've sinned against goodness itself, but I can be cleansed. And that sense of if we, if we start pulling on this thread, it's going to unravel some of the systems and institutions that we have put our foundational trust in. But as people of faith, our foundational trust shouldn't have been in that authority in those systems anyway. It should have been towards God Almighty and saying, how do we live in light of who you are and not continue to try to create more benign or favorable versions of these same systems? The other day I hopped in the car to go uh, pick up my son from camp and uh, NPR was on and someone was talking about um, South Africa and uh, white South Africans wrestling fearfully with the end of, of apartheid rule. And um, this person said something that was really fascinating to me. They said, part of the struggle of white South Africans was the fear that if the harsh apartheid system was done away with that black Africans would then do to them what right. they had done. And when that didn't happen, when black people did not retaliate, that there was a kind of psychological weight that white South Africans had a hard time dealing with. Mm -hmm. Um, because right, it, because their notion of white supremacy was mm -hmm, challenged. Because mm -hmm. they would say people that we have taught been taught were inferior. And part of what apartheid said was, part of what the system said was, if we do not have this harsh system, these people will harm us. Correct. So we, we need to, we this is justified. The end justifies this. the yes. means. Mm -hmm. We have to take these kinds of punitive postures towards folks who we perceive as less human and quote savage and so then when these structures are removed and all of a sudden these quote savages are not you know perpetuating violence and destroying then you go wait so by my own understanding of morality these this group of people who I have justified my behavior and greed by saying oh well these people didn't have the capacity to appreciate or weren't as moral as me are now proving to have more grace and mercy and um righteousness than than me yes and what christians so often fail to do is that in those times when that that uh, that weight begins to bear down we fail to fall back on the resources of our faith like repentance. Mm -hmm. And so what do we do? We double down. It's like, let, let's find uh, a new lie, a new reason, a new justification for some form of sin, injustice, whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's really important to have that childlikeness of saying mm -hmm. my worthiness is not at stake. And so I, by grace, I am received and made worthy. And so I have the capacity to accept the truth about sin and not lose heart because 
I understand that my sense of who I am has been challenged, but the revelation of the goodness of God has actually been confirmed by this idea that these systems of evil are not being allowed to stand unchallenged by by the Lord. So, yeah, I think that's really, um, I, and I, I love seeing it, and I love seeing, again, I think we were talking before about how repentance is a, is a catalyst so that what starts in Germany then, um, because part of it is this like collective agreement that we're all going to agree that right is wrong and wrong is right. And so then when one person says, no, actually, or one entity says, no, actually, as for me and my house, we're going to return these items, then other people find it more difficult to continue on with that moral charade and so then you see other people saying like no we we need to give these things back as well and well i hope this story uh, of giving uh, these works of art back to africa and their rightful owners um i hope this becomes a, a bigger story mm-hmm. I, I hope this um because becomes something that's in our consciousness because it's just such a counterpoint to so much of what we're hearing uh today especially in american news about um ethnic division and um, all of that. Uh, This is just Mm. a a beautiful story of repentance. Well, and I also think it's interesting to think about, you know, we, how a lot of these systems work through institutions. And the gift of that is that like, well, then no one's really responsible, right? Like it's not to say that there were, there was someone or a small group of people within that institution who really in closed door rooms said, Mm -hmm. Hey, why, why are we doing this and how is this okay? And let me cast vision for, we could do this in another way. And right now we have authority and agency in this space. And so let's use it and let's not just do what's been done before unthinkingly. Um, And also what's so powerful um, is that these same German people are revealing what has been the resistance. It's like, okay, here's why we haven't done this sooner because museums and museum directors actively campaigned against giving right. these statues back. And they said things like, um, well, they need to stay here because they're safe here. This is a yeah. safe place. And they said, wait, wait, we went and took them from right. the safe place. Safe, right? We're safe from and, us here. <laughs> yeah, and so they... I think Germany's just done a wonderful job of not only giving these statues back, but saying, here's here's our bad logic in, mm-hmm. in, in keeping them. Well, and I think that's true. Like the what is um what we ought to prize is not people who loudly proclaim their own righteousness, but people who we need to learn to value people who really bravely and humbly wrestle with their own wretchedness, right? And again, like that's not to denigrate Germany. I mean, that's, it's humanity writ large. And so to be able to say we can't, if, if our heroes are all people who are able to sell the story that they are perfect, if that's, if these are the only heroes to us, um, then, then we're in trouble. And I, I think it's interesting because I'm a, I hate this movement in, popular culture all these anti-hero moments where we sort of movements where you get someone who is purposefully doing great evil and we try to just sort of say like well sort of 
devise the evil, but I'm here for this idea of showing a person who is struggling to do good, but has a, you know, is a, is a real person and sort of normalizing, like, what does it mean to do good without being perfect? And what does it mean to celebrate, you know, a person's ability, imperfect ability to say, I'm going to take the next step of righteousness, even though I'm, you know, it's not complete, even though that requires telling the truth about myself in a way that glorifies God, but not me. And we have to do a better job in the stories. Like that's the part of moral imagination that I need us to expand as a church, not this idea that, well, there's, there's good people and bad people and you got to get from one camp into the other. And then once you're in the other camp, you got to just stay there and you can never move again. So, yeah. So what are you thinking about this week? Um, well, I, gosh, two things. I, I'm, um, I've been thinking a lot this week and I'm super grateful to you that we finished up last week, our worship series that we've been on since Pentecost about, um, life with the Holy spirit that we called spirit school. And, um, I had sent to some folks in the congregation my plan for worship and sought feedback about kind of what what is missing here. And um, someone said, like, you got to preach about spiritual gifts somewhere along there. So that was the culmination. And I had talked to you last week about, you know, how would you do this? And you suggested that um, I look at, uh, along with a more traditional text, which was First Corinthians 12, but to look at Act, and look at Exodus 31, which is when, God, when Moses is on Mount Sinai and sort of at receiving the end of the first download of covenant life um, that begins with Ten Commandments and then goes through um, all kinds of other things up and until this description of the tabernacle that the pattern is not going to be when you want to get to God, send somebody up the mountain, but that God is going to come down and dwell among the right in the center of this imperfect people and um and that in the very detailed description of what this tabernacle is going to be at the end god says to moses hey by the way you're not building this there here's these two dudes aholiab and bezalel they're the ones i've chosen um, and i filled them with the holy spirit and wisdom and knowledge in these skills, and they're going to build it and sew it and do all these things. And you had said, and that it's really important that when we think about spiritual gifting, we don't we we dismantle the lie that some things are spiritual and other things aren't, and that the, we are filled with the Holy Spirit when we do anything that we do for the Lord. And so, like this demarcation that we have between natural and supernatural. That's an us thing, not a God thing. And so in the same way that we would look at Acts and look at Corinthians and say like, oh, these people were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to be able to do X, Y, and Z, speak in tongues and prophesy and heal. Um, Bezalel and Oholiab were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to like, you know, cut cut stones, right? And that anything that we do for God is a spiritual gift. And um, I just thought it was really fun to think about that in the context of the congregation to say like who are we going to be as a community like how are we going to think about spiritual gifts and are we going to fall into that same trap that churches have been falling in from the beginning is using our spiritual gifts as status tokens and trying to sort of rank and decide whose is the most important or trying to determine a person's spiritual maturity based on a measurement of their anointing because people can be 
anoint because God can make donkeys talk. So the reality is a person can have a just a phenomenal spiritual gifting and not have any maturity behind it. And um, it, but be able like if we say like, OK, well, what we don't want is to decide that some people's gifts matter more than others or that some people are wrongly gifted and we don't want to recreate a worldly hierarchy in the church based on our preferences or comfort levels. But what, but what do, like, how can we understand it? And I think, you know, Paul has that image of the body that a lot of us are familiar with and that's great. But I really liked looking at this idea of like, look, Moses is literally on the top of the mountain talking directly to God having done this work of liberation and now covenant giving and he's got, you know, but in the moment of receiving that spiritual gifting, God says, Oh, here are other people and they have these gifts and you don't have them and you need to give them what they need so that they can exercise their spiritual gifts. And then their spiritual gifts will literally make the space and place for you to exercise yours. So your spiritual gift, Moses, uncovers their spiritual gifting and their spiritual gifting then in turn further equips you to live into your spiritual gifting. And that sort of idea of interdependence that like the more you are able to flourish in your gifting, the more I am able to flourish in my gifting. And we're not in this scarcity um, construct, but that we really see that when we are in the body of Christ, we are in an outpost of the kingdom of God. And so the culture is shalom. The culture is, I think, Trinitarian, this idea that like, I am able to come alive fully in Christ as much as you are able to come alive fully in Christ and that our gifts are interdependent and we complete one another and there's mutual flourishing. And we need to be able to cast vision for that in the church because if not, the only way people will be able to know how to use their spiritual gifting is the way they see talent and resources used in the fallen culture and we don't want to recreate those structures inside the church. Which is people at the bottom exercise their gifts so at the people so that the people at the top can flourish. Right. And and I thought it was really interesting to look at Exodus and say like here's a group of people who have just been rescued from enslavement and they were told well you, you know you're a threat. I mean it's really interesting like how this parallels with the other earlier conversation you're a threat, um, you're worthless. And you, your lives are going to be controlled and harnessed to create and build a thing that Pharaoh, who is elite and superior and more righteous, like he'll tell you how to use whatever talents you have and he will control you. And this idea that they had been building pyramids that were monuments to the glory of Pharaoh in this hierarchical system and now and life destroying. Right. And now they are learning how to live free in this wild way. And they are being invited to work together to build something small and hidden that glorifies God and brings the glory of God into the heart of the community. And just that contrast, though, of Moses is not sitting at the top saying, hey, here's what y'all all need to do. 
And Moses is, through God, becoming aware of the giftedness of people in the community and then saying to them, here's the limit of what I can do, and here's the beginning of your anointing and your blessing. And um, so, yeah, it's just a really beautiful way. Um, it, It was really fun to just see that and to cast vision in the community for we need to be a place where we expect the people around us to have gifts that we don't have and where we rejoice and don't feel threatened by people using their gifts and recognizing that all gifts are spiritual. So there's no difference in honor between the person who sweeps the floors and the person who gives the sermon. Like the world would say that, but in the kingdom, um, that all of these gifts have equal weight and value. And, um, and I think I, I sort of did a move at the end that, you know, the greatest gift in the kingdom is not any gift. It's the way of Jesus, which is the way of love. And so being able to say again, close with that chapter 13 to say, you know, you can have all this wisdom, but if you don't have love, you're a clanging gong and you can give your body to the flame. And if you don't have love, it doesn't count for anything. So to be able to say like, yes, let's have a conversation about spiritual gifts. And there are gifts that seem strange and wild and unruly to us and maybe even make us uncomfortable. And it's not our job to say, no, those don't exist anymore. But it is our job to say, these are not more important. And to say, it on uh, none of these gifts matter if they are exercised without love. And that's something that the world is going to think is dumb, but is the way of the upside down kingdom. We set alarms for ourselves because you you have to go. Yolanda's very busy and important today, and he has to go. So tell us quickly, what are you going to preach this week? I am going to preach once again from Colossians. And uh, we're looking at the second half of chapter one, where the apostle writes, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, uh, because the the Colossians are under great pressure, and they are being told that their faith in Jesus is good, but not enough, mm-hmm. and they are being pressured um, not to deny Jesus or to leave Christianity, but to sort of dethrone Jesus, and and the apostle is saying, no, you have Jesus, you have everything. And so the latter half of chapter one, uh, the apostle just gives this really kind of exalted theology of who Jesus is, uh, that um, the, the creator of all things, uh, the governor, the, the ruler of all things, and the one who, by his sacrifice on the cross, is reconciling all things. And it, it, it is... It is this big, again, exalted picture of Jesus. And he, uh, that is Paul, is inviting the Colossians to really rest in that. And kind of what we've been saying a couple of times in this podcast is that when you take seriously what you say you believe, you'll, you'll, they're, they're, it, it really will change you. Like if you really do believe in spiritual gifts, that changes you. If you really do believe in your belovedness in God, then repentance is a thing. It's a, it's a good thing. And so the apostle Paul is, is, is bringing them back to the greatness of Jesus in a world where, you know, all around them, they see 
sign saying Caesar is Lord. Right. I was going to say where greatness is defined really differently. And mm-hmm. so we have to be able to recalculate and recalibrate what goodness is, right? Because to the point of the earlier conversations, like in a colonial empire worldview, which let's face it, like from the beginning, the Bible has been, I mean, I remember reading this in Brueggemann for the first time and just being like, "Eh." but I mean, from the beginning, Egypt, Rome, Persia, I mean, the it has been this, um, conflict between the way God calls us to live, surrender, mutual interdependence, and the way of the enemy, which is, you know, power over and against others and use knowledge to oppress. And again and again, God has been calling us away from the way, away from empire and into a way of radical surrender and community. And um, I think it's interesting and you talk about Jesus reconciling all things and as opposed to sort of this cheap grace, like, um, it's all shallow, it's, what you do, it's okay. right. Like shallow atonement mm-hmm. theology, which sort of says like, well, Jesus suffered on the cross. And so somehow now it's almost as if Jesus has erased everything and it didn't happen. And that's not the gospel. Matter. It's reconciling, which is a, which is a, something that we as humans would say like, well, it can't be reconciled. And from a human level, it can't be reconciled, which is why our faith is in Christ and not in ourselves. And I think that's, what's so hard when you have this imperial mindset is you just want to say like, well, what we're going for then is the best that humans can handle. And that's why I think for a lot of people, especially who have, who have lived life winning in a lot of the systems, the amount of time that people spend praising Jesus can just be like, okay, yeah, yeah. But why, like, why do we need to sit here and sing about how great Jesus is all the time? Like, shouldn't we just like get onto the real work of like learning our moral code or like getting more knowledge and be able to say like, no, our ability to live free in this world is contingent upon the fact that we accept the revelation of scripture, which is that Jesus is doing this thing that is beyond the capacity of humans to do that in Christ, God is reclaiming and redeeming all of creation. And there is a way that we can be reconciled to God and then through God to one another. And that is not a thing that humans can pull off. But what we can do is like small imperfect steps like you know, we talked about with those statues that, again, like an imperial worldview would say, like, well, what does it even matter? It's, it's, you know, a few statues in the context or either it's done and like get over it, like it's in the past, get over it, which is a line or in the context of everything that's gone wrong, why does this matter? Why even bother? Mm -hmm. And so I think to be able to say, well, because what we believe in is not our ability to create something new, but uh, but God's ability and God's having done that completed it on the cross. And so now we are following the Holy Spirit, doing these small, foolish, hidden things, trusting that Jesus is visible, what the invisible God is doing in the world. And that's just not something that we can predict or control and it's just a really exciting thing to think about but not if you're so focused on like the colossians like oh jesus is sort of the red bull that gives you wings the little extra boost so that you can succeed in business without really trying right like you're being called to a radically 
new way of living that you're going to have to start over again as a child and thinking, I thought I knew for sure it was, you know, get serious. What was the phrase that he got wrong? You can't be serious or you got to yeah, be serious. Yeah, like, be I, serious. I'm sure <laughs> I know what I'm doing to say like, no, actually you are sure, surely wrong. And can you let go of everything you know for sure and start again as a little child? One of the great changes in my thinking that I'm so grateful for um, is that in, in the early part of my faith, I would watch the news or back, back then read the paper or some magazine and then conclude, like so many other people and so many other Christians, the world is going to hell. Right. That's, that's the conclusion. And now, by grace, I see and say, no, the world isn't going to hell. According to the scripture, the world is going to new creation. It's right. going to new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. Uh, beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. And that's why, and you, you, you uh, touched on this a moment ago, that's why it is so important for us to keep coming back to the greatness and the goodness of Jesus. Because in ourselves, we can't accomplish that. But if we keep beholding and... Um, obeying the one who can do it, then yes, this is a certain hope. Mm-hmm. So what are you preaching? Well. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> we, we talked about this earlier. This, it, it's going to be a great Sunday at the Grove. I, I, I do think, <laughs> I do think you are, uh, you're, you're on point with this, um, with this sermon, even though it's, it's a challenging text and one we don't often look at, but yeah. Tell the fine people listening to this podcast so what thing. you are preaching this I, Sunday, and you are you're you're brave. Sometimes like, I'm, I'm just hearing like, that that uh, Sarah Bella really? song. Yeah. I want to see you be brave. Come on, say what you want to say. Let well, the words fall out. Okay, I want to say this is not what I want to say, um, but it is where I feel led, and I'm either really on or the dumbest dummy that's ever dumbed no, and i just well, and i'm just faithful. saying like that's fine like you have this to is faithful. and i really feel like as a preacher you have got to step into the box and take a big swing right like you just that is gotta be it and so um so i this, love that you use more sports metaphors than me i know right i don't watch sports but i they're great metaphors um and i think it's really funny the other day you're like i love football i'm like what i do I love, anyway um, I am going to preach on Hosea this week, and I maybe we'll talk about it next week. But what is I, it starts out with that line? I think it's the second verse, but it's one of the most it's the greatest lines of scripture that God says to the prophet Hosea: "Go and take a wife of whoredom." <laughs> and, um, and I, I, um, I just want to unpack what this book is and cast vision for it. What is a little? I think that would be um, overwhelming to me no matter what. But this Sunday is supposed to be the Sunday where our Freedom School families come. And so we're supposed to have all, I mean, who knows if they will, but we're supposed to have all these visitors. And I'm like, am I really supposed to preach on this text that is this just strange and is talking about, you know, infidelity and, and women you know and whoredom and marriage and just all these crazy crazy things and my instinct is like no no let me just clean this up and let me just preach something that's like you know let's just preach um you know the lost sheep or the good shepherd or let's just preach something but I'm like no I mean the gospel the the hope of the gospel is that it includes 
parts of reality that we want to edit out. Mm. And and we want to say, like, oh, come and be part of our community where, I was saying earlier, where it's all rainbows and puppy dogs. And just be part of this community and you'll be good and good will happen to you and good will all be the only thing that you'll ever have to deal with. And that's just, that's a lie. And what is what is actually good about God and the gospel is that God is not content to stay in the playpens that we try to enclose the sacred in and that God is insistent about going out, you know, to the edges and to the places of deep brokenness and deep disease and saying here and especially here, I will display my holiness. And so I think, you know, that text in particular, Hosea has been used in horrific ways by um by the antichrist um and it has been weaponized against women um but it is not a text about women it is a text about humans mm. and it is a text about how we are chosen by god and we as humans are unfaithful to god and god does not forsake us even though we deserve to be forsaken and I think just really wrestling with that and as people of faith, as much as we want to pretty it up on Sunday morning to say like, no, from the beginning, you have to learn that the story of God in the world includes the story of God choosing people who we think are corrupt and um, and God refusing to let go of people who disturb and threaten the status quo and God refusing to settle for a reasonable amount of salvation or a reasonable amount of goodness. So anyways, I, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to I'm going to preach Hosea this week. I hope I hope you will. It'll be and great. I hope that people aren't going to be like what in the world is this church about? I just want to come and learn about little lambs. But and that's okay. Um because if you are going to be a multi-ethnic community, you have to be a space where you wrestle with the real evil and betrayal um between humans and God and humans and one another. And that does not happen by just pretending that everything is okay or reasonable or somehow wiped clean. So anyway, that's what I think I'm going to do unless I chicken out and I might chicken out. I'm just not going to lie. I might chicken out. Sometimes I do. You will so not chicken. out. I might chicken out. No. So anyway, thanks for listening. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> If you want to learn more about what God is doing at Derida Prez, you need to go to their website, um, which is D-E-R-I-T-A-P-R-E-S, DeridaPrez.org. And you can find their podcast on the Podbean website. You can check out Yolanda's back catalog of sermons. You can check out their YouTube page and um, be part of worship there. Or you can join them in the sanctuary at 11 on Sunday mornings. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, um, you can go to our website. There's someone at the door, thegrovecharlotte.org. You can go to our uh, podcast or our YouTube channel. And thanks for talking to us. We will talk to you next week. 